This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is poet Twyla Hansen. Ted Kuser and Bill Clefcorn's collection together called Cottonwood County. I thought, they're writing about dirt and cattle. I know about dirt and cattle. I took a class in poetry writing and with William Clefcorn. I loved it, but you know, my first poems were terrible. And, but you have to start somewhere. Really enjoyed writing, and I didn't stop writing when the class was over. And the rest is history now. Twyla Hansen was born and raised in northeast Nebraska on the farm her grandparents had purchased as immigrants from Denmark in the late 1880s. Hansen served as Nebraska's state poet for the term 2013 to 2018. Her newest book of poetry, Rock Tree Bird, won the 2018 Willa Literary Award and the 2018 Nebraska Book Award for Poetry. She is the author of six other award-winning books of poetry, and her writing has been published widely in numerous periodicals and anthologies. Twyla Hansen, welcome to Lives. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have a sense we'll come back to this question, but I wanted to start with the question, is poetry a way that you make sense of the world? Oh, I absolutely. Um, when I'm working on some um, working on my writing, I, I'm a poet of place. I, I believe um, place is super important because it grounds you. And there's things I don't understand um, in the world, and sometimes you know those come in, but they are grounded in reality and in a place. And not everyone can relate to certain poems. But uh, that, that's okay because the sensibility comes through and the appreciation of the, uh, the place and also um, just taking pride in your surroundings. Place is absolutely central, and I'm not sure if this is veering into a pun, but it, it, it feels to be where a lot of your work is, is located. That could be in relation to your, the farm you were raised on and, and your childhood, um, the unique and not so unique Nebraska landscape and the associated flora, fauna, the wildlife. And, and I also thought as I was reading your work that your poetry is also um, a landscape of your mind and your memories and, and time and emotions. And so I, I wanted to perhaps start by delving a little bit into some of these aspects, given that your childhood began on this farm. I'm wondering for you what feelings and reflections you have about growing up on a farm. Willa Cather said you you learn everything you need to know to write by the age of 13, I think. I think that's what she said. Um, and I lived on a farm, in this little farm in northeast Nebraska, until I was about 15 or 16. And... I, I can't get that out of my system. I mean, because my sensibilities were were formed there. Um, I had so many experiences, good, bad, or weird, in that place. And um, the fact that my grandparents lived there and raised a family, it it's, makes me think back because my grandmother 
came over to this country uh, from Denmark, and my grandfather did too, and he actually lived in a dugout while he farmed with his cousin, I believe. They came back the next spring after they went into Omaha to winter. The dugout was gone because they'd had spring floods, you know, just like uh, untamed land, uh, rivers and streams do. So another experience that I can't forget is that they lost their first three children to disease. And my grandmother, I mean, you're, they're out there miles from town. They're about five or six miles from town. There weren't any roads. They had to take the wagon across country to go to town. And they didn't speak the language. Um, and so I just think of my grandmother being isolated out there and just, and her husband, my grandfather that I never met, um, uh, he was not a kind man. He was driven. He knew what he wanted and he just expected his wife to, to do the work in the house and be the, raise the children. So my grandmother wasn't satisfied until she had three more children. And my dad was the youngest and she was in her forties when he was born. So you know, when you think about that, you know, and to think about being in the world when it, it really did not make sense, it's, it's an experience I can't forget. And it took place on this little farm. All of your books seem to have some intonation of, of that experience within them, either directly within the poems or that, that sensibility. And one aspect that stood out to me was not only the beauty and the innocence and the naivety of your experience growing up on a farm, but also just how brutal and uncertain um, and the hard work of it. it. It's often your poems seem to be an elegy for, for what the farm was, but also at the same time, a clear-eyed reflection that it wasn't easy. Right. And, and you know, uh, farming has its ups and downs. In every generation, there's usually a crisis or two, and um, things just got so, to the point um, my dad didn't really want to farm. He wanted to go to school, but that was denied him. And when they said, get big or get out, that was it for him. He just said, that's it. I'm going to learn a trade. And so he went to Toledo, Ohio, and learned how to be a meat cutter. And we moved to Lincoln, and he had a job. And so he was earning wages, which is totally different than you know trying to make it on farm receipts and farm crop sales and futures and blah, 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 and credit. It was too much, and he wanted to get away. There's a line um, it's in the poem, I write this while you are still alive, and it's in your latest book, Rock Tree Bird. And the line is, for years, things rural were pretty good. And of course, it's a precursor to explaining that things haven't been so good. Mm -hmm. Has it been painful to see that sort of decline given that your life is marked by those formative years where farming for all its difficulty and grandeur and beauty and, and mystery was a key experience for you and, and now it's something very very different yes in fact my oldest brother who's like 11 years older than I am when he read them that line or something like that that I'd written before he says we, I don't remember that I, I didn't get the sense that we were in decline and I said well, um, you missed that part of it. You were gone, but that started to happen. And um, I don't know. It was just, of course, that was painful to me emotionally because I didn't want to see my parents arguing. I didn't want to see them 
stressed about money, which they were all the time. And um, so it was a good thing we left, but um, you had to go through the other part to get there. So There's also a long prose poem called There in the same book, which also seems to capture in almost a stream of thought poem all the joys and experiences that were a feature of of that farm. I I wonder if writing that was in some way sort of cathartic for you. Right. Um, That's an interesting question because I know it's a balance of joy and and pain. Um, There's always a flip side to the pain. And that was just, I had a great childhood. I had a happy childhood. (laughs) And, you know, I I almost envy people who had a bad childhood because, man, do they have a lot to write about. But this was significant to me because of the physical place again. I mean, it was a beautiful setting. Things were in decline. When I came along, my grandmother loved to garden, had lots of flower beds, had roses, and had um, had a vine house. And they they grew grapes. Well, well, that was falling down, and the and the lily pond was scum. You know, when I was there, but it was all really beautiful. The trees had started to grow up. That my grandfather and my father planted and I loved it I loved living on that farm growing up there so it, it was the later years that got kind of hard because well it it couldn't last you know you also write about loss in in other forms and the loss of relationships not least your parents and there's a line in the poem on the winter solstice and the last few lines read, I'd give anything, as they say, to walk with her again on this shortest day, anything to help me through this longest night. And that's about the loss of your mother. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how poetry has helped you cope with and to process grief. Yes. um, It doesn't seem to matter how many years they live. It's if you lose your mother, especially, I, I, I don't know. I had three older brothers they dealt with it in their own way, but I spent a lot of time with my mother when she was older, and she died at 96, um, so she had a long life, and, and it was a good life for the most part, so she never lost her small town ways, and so I was going to see her every day in in the place where she had to move because she couldn't uh, take care of herself that well. You know, there's a certain amount of guilt with that because my brothers and I had to decide that and her doctor advised it and she was going to give up everything, like her freedom. And she was a free spirit for a lot of years. After my dad died, she took dancing lessons. Ten years later, she went dancing out at the Playmore, which is outside of town, and she drove herself, you know. And so it was hard for her, but... um, it did work out for the best, and then I just really got to know her better, I think. I, you know, I don't know. She was a little distant. She had a, a hard uh, childhood, so, and I'm glad I did that. I don't regret that at all. And so when she did die, it was just, it was, you know, it's very sad. The arc of life is such that there's a transition between who is responsible for whom in certain situations, again, referencing another poem my mother's hair. And in that you say, I rub and pat her head with a towel. Are you okay? I ask, meaning, tell me something you want to say before you die. 
such an everyday experience you're describing, washing your mother's hair and wanting to connect, but there are so many layers to that. That one came out again, like a stream of consciousness kind of thing. And I was making the connections while I was writing because I asked her, you know, I, but I, you know, it's funny how, well, oh, yeah, I want to ask her a question before she dies. And that came in as I was writing this out. You know, I think a poet really has to be on alert for opportunities to write. You know, I, in some ways, that takes advantage of that um, relationship and kind of reveals maybe a little bit too much, but I think it's a universal experience. And I think most of us would want their mother to say something that I should know, you know, but of course it was too late for that. And again, I'm curious how helpful for you it's been interpreting all of those moments through the lens of capturing them in some poetic form. Yeah. Um, 9-11, I wrote a poem about 9-11, but I couldn't take that huge subject and write a 9-11 poem. I had to focus what I was doing that day, because like everybody knows what they were doing when they heard the news, and just, I was on a field trip with my granddaughter, and we were on the prairie, and then I had to just fuse those two things together, because that's the only way I could make sense out of 9-11. And the children were the prey. They played a game, predator prey, and it was just, oh my God. So I was taking notes when that happened, and in my mind, and also I was physically taking notes because uh, at the end of this little prairie thing that they did, and they were supposed to write something. She was in fourth grade, and I don't know what she wrote, but I was writing something. I thought, <laughs> I'm going to remember everything here, you know. Is that part of being a poet, always being ready with pen and paper to uh, capture the, yeah, the muse? right. You talked about just this keen appreciation for experience with attention to place. Mm -hmm. And apart from the obvious, which is that you live in Nebraska, mm -hmm. is there something about place or Nebraska specifically that has compelled you through your life to be attentive to it as a poet? Well, you know, we have weather here. We have big weather and we have occasional drought in this area, particularly. And so there's always something to write about that you can bring the weather in, um, the cloud formations. I'm, the other night, my partner and I were looking out the west window, and it was absolutely, there was a purple layer, and there was blue below, and then a brilliant, uh, I don't know where the sun was going down, and it just hit the top of those clouds. It was red. It was like, Whoa, you know, so we stood there and watched it for a while because it would just change in minutes. And just being in a, an area that used to be completely covered with grass, and the only trees were along the rivers and the streams, and those were cut down because people needed uh, wood to build houses and for fuel. So um, I, I was a 
riding coach for four years along the Platte River. We were studying the Oregon Trail with teachers, and I was the riding coach, and uh, we did that for four years. And and then they changed to Lewis and Clark trip. Um, they went up in buses to Wyoming, but we camped along the Platte. We saw the Lone Grave, Kennesaw. We, you know, and there was a biologist along, um, and who said, "Well, none of these trees you see along the Platte were here when the wagon strings came through because they had already been cut down. So everything is secondary growth now." Referencing another poem, you said, "Paying attention is a form of prayer." Yes. Is there something beyond the, the purely physical? Is there something, I don't know, divine or sacred that, that you see, you experience, and, and that you try to capture in your work about this place? Right. Well, I'm always interested in folklore and what's the Greek gods, you know, and things that are beyond us, the uh, Milky Way that you can see every once in a while, and, um, and the star formations. You know, we are such little specks down here on the ground. But there's a lot of rich stuff to write about on the ground, So, um, but we're part of a bigger thing. And I think that's something I try to get in my work, too. The thing about Nebraska is you can see the horizon, horizon to horizon, uh, you, unless you're down in a valley or something. But it's, it's vast, and it's, um, you can drive not too far out of um, Lincoln and see the Milky Way. In fact, on the Platte River, where I uh, sometimes go near South Bend to write with friends, on certain nights, you, it's right between Lincoln and Omaha, you can see the Milky Way, just barely, probably not all much of it all, but you can still see a lot of formations. So there's something, you know, there's something big and vast about the universe. And I think that's, that's part of our experience, and I think it is sacred. It's like, remember who you are and where you are and... I enjoy that a lot. I don't know that I've read any poet write as many ways to explain what the moon's doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there something in your own sense of self, uh, perhaps how you see, how you consider humans see themselves, mm-hmm. when you're trying to capture something about, trying to write about something that is literally cosmic? Right. Well, I, I'm a, a scientist by training. I mean, so... Um, I'm not an English major, by the way. Um, I, my degrees are in horticulture and agroecology. And, um, but um, so um, science helps explain a lot in the world. And um, it doesn't seem to make too much difference today, but um, it is a fact. And, and there are facts. <laughs> oh, boy, I don't want to go down this road. But I'm just... I'm just trying to say that there's forces in nature that are bigger than us. And, and one of the ones that's sacred to me is the soil because it's a thin crust and it's being washed away right now. And in fact, I'm working on a project, a writing project with a photographer in Lincoln now, um, Michael Farrell. And I'm trying to write poems to go with his photographs of a rural area. I'm having to really stretch to do this but um, that's not my usual process but it really makes me think okay what is really going on out here and uh, I focus a lot on what's going on underneath our feet Um, it's pretty darn important (laughs) 
you try to construct some dark sky opportunities for yourself? Well, yeah, um, deliberately, yes, when I wanted to see the Perseids meteor shower. It's a regular, um, reliable meteor shower that peaks at August, on August 12th. In fact, I'd like to read that poem um, that you can best see away from city lights and on a dark night when the moon isn't interfering. And that doesn't happen every year. It's probably every fourth year, third or fourth year. Um, I'd like to read a poem I wrote um, when I took a trip with my husband to the Sand Hills to see the Perseids meteor shower. And um, it's a reliable meteor shower that, that um, peaks on August 12th, uh, away from city lights and on a moonless night. So it's called August 12 in the Nebraska Sandhills watching the Perseids meteor shower. In the middle of rolling grasslands, away from lights, a moonless night untethers its wild polka dots, the formations we can name competing for attention in a twinkling and crowded sky bowl. Out from the corners, our eyes detect a maverick meteor, a transient streak, and lying back toward midnight on the haft of car hood, all conversations blunted, we are at once unnerved and somehow restored. Out here, a furrow of spring-fed river threads through the ranches in the tens of thousands of acres. Like cattle, we are powerless. By instinct, we can see why early people trembled and deliberated the heavens. Off in the distance, those cattle make themselves known. A birdsong moves singular across the horizon. Not yet, too, and bits of comet dust, the Perseids, startle and skim the atmosphere like skipping stones. In the leaden dark, we're utterly alone. As I rub the ridges on the back of your hand, our love for all things warm and pulsing, crescendos toward dawn, this timeless awe, your breath floating with mine upward into the stars. That was lovely, thank you. I especially, well, there was so much I loved about it, but we were talking a little bit about the sacredness of our physical world, and that's the world that we can touch and see and feel right now, but also that world that seems to be just so far flung and beyond us. Do you still find that you get a sense of awe and wonder in the world around you? Yes. I mean, um, like, again, I have a great appreciation for um, the star formations and um, and something like this. I think um, seeing a meteor shower, it, it's it's it piques your curiosity. Um, we really deliberately wanted to see it. And so we drove quite a ways from Lincoln in the middle of the sand hills to see it because there were no lights. There were no lights anywhere. I mean, it was if there were, they were just so far away you could hardly see them. But um, yes, I still get that kind of. It just kind of, you know, gives you a little sensation almost physically when you see something incredible. I mean, like that sunset I described. I had never seen that before. And so, sure, I've seen lots of pretty sunsets, but nothing with purple in them and, and red. You know, it's just, 
It was terrific. You also have a deep appreciation for the animals that exist around us too, whether they're farm animals, domesticated animals, or wild animals. But one animal that consistently seems to turn up in your work, as far as I was reading it, is the heron. I wonder if you have a special attachment or affinity with the heron or any other animal? Right. Um, Well, right now I have um, Baltimore Orioles in my yard, and I'm feeding them. Um, And actually, they don't feed very much when they're raising the young, but they're here, and I hear them. um, But the heron has always long been fascinating to me, so stately and sits in the water very patiently waiting for a meal. And then it uses this beak and it, you know, it's getting something in the water. Yeah, there's kind of a self-sufficiency with these wild animals that I admire. And um, they don't complain. They take what they can get. And it's it's kind of something my, it's worth modeling, you know. <laughs> We've got so much waste in the world and plastic in the ocean now. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> so much stuff. Maybe now then is a, a good segue into your own, I think, um, your wild acre. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's quite the right term for it, but you live very close to Lincoln. You live on a, mm-hmm. um, an acre. I don't know if it's allowed to run free, but certainly it has wildness about it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you wouldn't mind describing what, what is this wild acre. Okay. Well, my late husband and I built a house on almost an acre in Northeast Lincoln. It's within the city boundary, Um, but there's nothing behind us until you get to um, Highway 34. But it's kind of uh, isolated back there along a um, city waterway, and that waterway comes from Salt Creek, and so it's therefore a wildlife corridor. And um, I've had all kinds of small mammals in the yard, birds and wild turkeys and deer and um, certainly raccoons and, you know, all kinds of things, including a fox that comes regularly. So these animals have adapted to city living, and it's endlessly fascinating to me. And I invite them in by not – I don't treat my lawn, and I it's – It's an unspoiled acre in that we started out with a weedy pasture and then planted a bunch of trees. And over the years, it sort of self-perpetuates. And now I have to cut things out because they would take over. But it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. So clearly having this space for you is a pleasure. It fulfills something that you need and enjoy. I'm also wondering how much of this is an oasis for you against the pressures of environmental degradation writ large across the world, and to some degree a protest against that. It is. 
We got two weed notices. Okay, and I, after we got, and they threatened to come out and mow the entire yard. And I had a lot of native grasses and tall things in my yard. And um, the second time I got, we got a, um, a weed notice. It's only enforced on complaint. Um, I went through and named every plant in my yard. So I'm a horticulturist, and I knew the scientific names. I knew that I did not have any noxious, illegal weeds on my property. They may not be, you know, they're, they're contained blooms, even if it's a, considered a weed. A weed is just a plant out of place. So um, like a dandelion was native to Europe, and the immigrants brought them over um, seeds from dandelions because they wanted that pretty little yellow flower. So um, it's bee food in my my mind. Um, <laughs> that's not the normal mind uh, because you know everybody wants that perfect lawn, and I don't believe in that. And so it's bucking the trend. I'm doing my little part uh, to try to have a little haven right in the middle, surrounded by you know. Manicured lawns. So uh, it's, yeah, I'm being kind of a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't all poets rebels? <laughs> That's right. We are. We're a fighting bunch. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear from your, you know, your latest book, Rock Tree Bird, that there were two or three poems in there that, that do speak explicitly to that world around us that has changed a lot since you were raised on a farm in an environment where we perhaps were not quite as aware of what we were about to wreak upon the earth. And here we are some sort of five decades later, and you are writing about the um, damage that we're creating around us. Yes. I, you know, I don't think most people, there's a disconnect between our food and, um, and what's actually happening on the ground because most people live in cities. In Nebraska, we mostly live in cities. But a lot is going on. Now, the sand hills are an exception because they've tried, but all that really grows there, they can raise cattle on that grass, which is great. Um, but, you know, most of the prairie was plowed. Every once in a while, you'll see a little native patch. But I think we're um, missing the boat on uh, trying to mitigate climate change. Uh, by not having more wild spots in our, our personal space. There's room for a little patch of pollinator plants. I'm all for it. So um, anyway, but climate change is so big. We just, you know, I can't do anything about the policies, but I can do this in my own yard. And I think that's empowering. Um, I wish my neighbors would agree with me with, on that, but it's okay. They they're tolerated. So um, this was the first house built on this cul-de-sac. So, <laughs> um, and, it, and it happened back in the early 70s when the first oil crisis. So um, we were very much aware of that and tried to get the grass to grow, but it drought and you name it. But uh, it's there now. So. Is there a poem that springs to your mind about your wild acre? I'd like to read a poem for you, uh, for you that is from a brand new collection that's coming out this uh, fall from WSC Press. And it's called Feeding the Fire, and it's a full-length collection. 
Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. So <laughs> it's always exciting and scary to have a new book, but um, I'm I'm totally ready for that. And then, and I'd like to read each morning. Each morning, I open the glass door to the dark, invite in the thicket, quiet but for leaf flaps, while the sun slides up slow. I cannot distinguish between multiple dim trunks and the duff below turning to compost that every day decay its silent music. And just beyond is the pile where I invite small furred ones to feast overnight on food scraps. Soon the first calls of jays, hey, hey, wake up to those still here. Most have flown, pulled by the magnetic field, the loss of light which our bones comprehend. They're leaving like other multiple departures we do not always notice. Over the years, they pile up like leaves, each one diving to its bright death. Yet here each morning, the day turns brighter. Each bird brings me sustenance as they wing their way to my world. Thank you for that one. Thanks. What is exciting you now? Capturing your imagination. I'm, I'm working on a new project now that does have a timeline um, with Michael Farrell. He's a videographer, worked for um, Game and Parks for years, and um, he's responsible for that Platte River time lapse. And he's an interesting guy, and um, his photos are black and white, and so I'm trying to write some color into my what I'm doing. And... Um, so watch for that. He wants to have a show, and his, he has an art gallery. Um, it's called Wall Space, Link, L-N-K. And it's down in a little neighborhood in uh, Lincoln. And he's had some really good shows so far. And he wants to do um, have my poem accompany some of the photos. And more of my poems are kind of general, but he's opened all my ideas, so. I love the interconnection between not only those two types of creativity, but how those together can be um, connected in a way so that our experience of the plat can perhaps be um, nudged tangentially. Yeah, um, I did a project with uh, Karen Kuntz, um, the printmaker. She's internationally known, and she asked. She had this little book project she was doing, and and it was her wonderful prints and on the backside uh, they published one of my I wrote a poem for this project and she's not able to really articulate what it's about but it, she had a few key words that I zoned in on and that really helped me but it was about um, the landfill and how wasteful oh we are <laughs> <laughs> greed you know uh, debris you know and, and then she had hope and stuff at the end and so it really helped me structure that poem and I had a great time writing it and once I've got started on an idea
So let's let's just, if you don't mind, talk a little bit more about you for a second. Okay. And um, I don't believe in reincarnation as such, mm-hmm. but um, there is uh, this experience you share in a poem called Flight, and it's about sandhill cranes, and, oh, and you're yeah. watching them with such immersion that you have this sense towards the end of the that you express towards the end of the poem that if if you move, twitch, move a muscle, you yourself will take flight. And it suggests this sort of transmutation, this metamorphosis from you into crane. Mm-hmm. And it just made me wonder that intensity of identification. If there is something you identify in yourself that is wild, mm-hmm. that is of nature. Yes, I believe I would be a, I mean, I think if I don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, but I think life goes on even, you know, it just, it turns into something else. Uh, I heard a biologist say one time, things are becoming something else. Everything is becoming something else. So, you know, who knows? I might live in the spirit of a bird or, you know, my late husband could be turned into compost, you know. So it's it's that kind of thing. It's becoming something else. But it's still there, and life goes on. But I don't know if that's reincarnation or not, but it's, it's certainly a good thought. I like it a lot. You shared that um, academically you got a degree in horticulture. You got a master's in agroecology. Mm-hmm. So when did you realize that the written word, poetry, literature, was a creative outlet that you wanted to, perhaps needed to pursue? Well, I started writing as, as an older, um, I guess. I started taking this, some classes. I worked at Nebraska Wesleyan University as a horticulturist for a lot of years, and I could take classes for free. And so since I didn't have too many humanities credits required for my horticulture degree, I decided to start, start taking literature classes and things I needed that I felt the need for. And I'd always had a long appreciation for poetry because, well, not long, but I read uh, Ted Couser and Bill Clefcorn's collection together called Cottonwood County. And I thought, they're writing about dirt and cattle. I know about dirt and cattle. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I took a class in poetry writing and um, with William Clefcorn, who was our first Nebraska state poet. Um, that's an, a history that's separate from John Nyhart, who is our poet laureate in perpetuity in Nebraska. That was decided by the state legislature. So anyway, that's a long lead up to me taking his classes and I loved it, but you know, my first poems were terrible. And but you have to start somewhere. And like I said, I'm not an English major, but I sure really enjoyed writing and I didn't stop writing when the class was over. And the rest is history now. So you were a state poet. You mentioned William Clefcorn, yes. uh, but but you also assumed that role. And I think there have only been, including the current state poet Matt Mason, only four state poets. Well, yes, there was John Nyhart in the poet laureate position. And when he passed away, they couldn't call the next one poet laureate because 
he was poet laureate in perpetuity, as designated by the legislature. So, um, so they had to decide, and the um, Arts Council, the Humanities Nebraska, and um, the Library Commission formed a committee, and they interviewed or decided who would be the next poet. They called them the state poet. So Bill Clefcorn was, that was another lifetime position. Um, and he passed away in 2011. And then in 2012, I believe, um, they also, those three groups converged again and set criteria for the position because nothing had been formalized ever. It was, it was just a vote, I guess. So they set out criteria and formed a committee that would help select uh, the next state poet. But before that, they asked some of us writers, what do you want to see in the next state poet? And I was one who said we ought to have term limits. Let's just, you know, three, most states do two years, some do three, and up to five. And I said, how about five years, you know, and something like that. And and the committee agreed on that it's because there's so many good writers in Nebraska. You occupied that, and I'm going to say exalted position, <laughs> and uh, you were state poet for five years. And I, I want to mention that because I want to ask you the question, clearly poetry has been important for you. What is your response to the question about why is poetry important to us, mm-hmm. us as a community, us as a society? Well, um, to me, it helps make sense of the world. It helps you um, make sense of other people, and you create a community around that. And uh, to me, that's really important for young writers. And I've done a lot of workshops for young writers. And in fact, when I was a state poet, I traveled 4,000 miles a year on average. Um, I crisscrossed the state many, many, many times. and um, it wasn't a very efficient system, but I had to, uh, I used programs. Uh, they hired me through Humanities Nebraska. That's the way I got paid. And, um, and it's a rewarding and humbling experience to be a state poet because you realize there's people out there who love to write. They're, they might be closet poets, you know, I don't know. But it's, it's, there's good writing out there. And when a student will, when they're just busy writing for my exercise that I give and in my workshops, and they're just busy writing, and then they can't wait to read just what what they just wrote. It's very rewarding. I mean, you realize that this is a good thing. This is good. They want to write. And I just helped them get started, you know, and then they took it from there. In some ways, you're touching a little bit on the idea of craft, and and I wonder what what is your approach to the craft of writing? Oh yes, yeah. Well, I, it's pretty pragmatic. If you wait for the muse to come along and tap you on the shoulder politely and say, "Okay, you need to write this now," um, you need to sit down and write. I mean, the writer writes, so we can talk all day about poetry and how-to poetry, you can talk craft all day, which I could listen to. I could listen to someone else talk about their craft, but I need to be writing. (laughs) And I think the best way to learn is to write. And you just start where you start and 
maybe you steal words from other poets. The, the simplest exercise is read a poem, write a poem. So you read a poem and you think, I could write about that. Okay, use the premise. Use the subject line. Use words from it. Jack up the title and drive your own new poem under it. I mean, it's like, it's just like, okay, this isn't rocket science, but it is something that you have to develop your voice and uh, what you want to write about and just go with it because what you know is, is food for poetry. You just may not realize it until you get it down on the page, your experience in the world. Is there a poem or a poet that you find yourself regularly turning to for whatever need you're feeling in that moment? Right. Well, um, Mary Oliver comes to mind. Her poetry deeply touched me when I was first writing, and you know, I wanted to be that kind of writer. And and that's, I think, one of her skills was really paying attention to the natural world. And I thought, wow, you know, this is deep. This is cool. And so I tried to write like her. And there's nothing wrong with trying to imitate people. It's it's harder than it sounds. Um, but you have to make it your own and put your sensibilities into it and your spin on how you see the world. You wrote the foreword to the collection, the book collection, Nebraska Poetry, a sesquicentennial anthology. And you record former Nebraska State poet William Clefcom mm -hmm. uh, and his observation that poems are words highly distilled, nibbling at the edge of something vast. Do you feel like you're nibbling at something vast with, with your poems? Well, I hope so. I'm trying to. But you can't, like I said, the 9-11 poem is so vast. A 9-11 subject is so vast. All I could do is nibble around the edge in my own experience, my own world, but make those connections on the page the best I could. And, and I think that's true with any subject, the cosmos or whatever. All you can do is talk about your own experience underneath that huge thing. Um, I'm not an expert on the cosmos, but I sure appreciate it. And I'm going to circle back to that, the very first question that I asked you at the top of the show. Has poetry helped you make sense of the world? And I want to re-ask it, but asking you, has poetry helped you make sense of yourself? Oh, absolutely. Uh, after my, well, when my husband was um, diagnosed with a brain tumor a few years back, uh, I, I, you know, I was completely lost, but I knew after he passed away, after a short illness, um, that I was going to be okay when I started writing again. And I have, in this new collection, I have several poems in there. Uh, the middle section is about loss and my dealing with it. Um, a really important loss, you know. So um, I think poetry can save you. Um, it certainly allows people to get stuff out of their system. I wouldn't say it does that because you don't get over a loss like like that, but um, you learn how to live with it. And the same with any kind of trauma or thing in your life or a bad childhood or, you know, 
on loss of a parent or whatever, but you learn how to live with it because life is for the living and it does move on. It's moving on. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I know you wanted to read one more poem from this forthcoming collection. Would would you mind doing that now and perhaps giving us the introduction and the backstory for this poem? Okay. Well, I wrote this um, a number of years ago, but it seemed to fit into this collection because um, Feeding the Fire, this collection that's coming out this fall, it starts with the present and moves back in time. And uh, that's not the way I usually um, put a book together, but um, there's three parts and it moves into the past. But this is the very first poem in the book because I, um, well, you'll see why. It's a love poem. So easy in fall. So easy in fall to fall in love, in love of wind, the winds of fall, the blousy scents, warm, cool in between, warm and cool battle, the season's whims. On a whim outing, walk with me on the prairie, walk the warm hilltops, step into the cool ravines. Before us, the native grass turns red, gold, purple, the late season forbs bending their heads. Wind and clouds stir, birds scur the sky, the calls and responses from somewhere close. Come lie with me, dear, where deer have rested. On thatch, rest your bones. We are here. Close your eyes. Breathe the soil, the drought, the rain, the green, the brown. Overhead seeds wave. That other world can wait. My guest today has been Twyla Hansen, former Nebraska State poet. Twyla, thank you so much for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>